Welcome to the Expert Witness Podcast. I'm excited to be here today with our guest, Dr. Kenny Stein. Dr. Stein is a medical doctor. He has nearly three decades of experience in emergency medicine, critical care medicine, and internal medicine. He has also reviewed over 700 cases. He's been deposed over 200 times and has testified at trial uh, around 45 times. So Dr. Stein, it's a pleasure to have you here and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, pleasure to be here, sir. All right, so the first question I always like to ask is, how did you get into expert witness work? I mean, is it something that they talk about in medical school as an option or where did you even learn that expert witness work is a possible career path? So it, it's it's a branch of a career. You need to be an expert in an area such as medicine. So first you need to be a physician or whatever your specialty or expert area is. Uh, I was attending a CME, a continuing medical education uh, uh, seminar, and part of the week-long thing they were talking about in emergency medicine is how the medical legal system works and the role of an expert witness. And they say that it's reasonable as a physician to consider being an expert witness because one, it helps you to protect yourself realizing what happens in medical legal cases, where the cases come from, learning how to document better, how to um, discuss things with patients so that they understand, and to kind of be able to be witness both for the defense or the expert, should be or the plaintiff, that that kind of brings more understanding to you and also improves your practice. Separately, I had a colleague who had done some expert work and uh, he spoke with me about it, and I became interested in it. All right, that's very good. It's it's an interesting point that they brought up at your seminar that seems to come up quite often, is that doing expert work makes you that much better at whatever your core competency is, whatever your original expertise was. Yeah, and, and, do, and not only in doing your job and understanding where pitfalls may come up, but also in how to document appropriately. Uh, mm -hmm. there, there's an old saying that attorneys used to use, which is, if it's not in the medical record, it never happened, which, <laughs> which is never true. You can't document everything. That's kind of what attorneys would tend to say. Uh, and then now with the advent of the electronic medical record, it's kind of the inverse of that, where there's so many people that have pre-templated notes and they're copying and pasting from one day to the other. And so the way I like to say it is, well, now, just because it is in the record doesn't mean it really did happen. You know, oh, that's may or interesting. May not, you have to kind of look at the whole picture. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. We we experienced that same sort of thing in safety, where if it's not documented, it never happened. We haven't gotten to the point where things are over-documented yet in, in the safety industry. So that's, that's very interesting to watch for. So... As you were getting into the expert witness field and this type of work, were there any barriers or obstacles you had to overcome, or have you been in pretty high demand from day one? Well, well, first, before I started, I realized that if you're going to do it and you're going to be an expert, you should learn how to be a knowledgeable, professional, ethical expert witness. And there's so much in that area that's different 
from the legal aspect from what we learned in medical school. Mm -hmm. And there's a wonderful organization out of Massachusetts called SEEK, S-E-A-K, SEEK Experts. And they put on uh, seminars on various aspects related to legal uh, work and medical negligence. One, they have, I think it was called How to Bulletproof Your Practice or something of that nature. That as a physician, understanding the medical legal system, as we were discussing, how to document, how to um, talk to patients so they feel that they're heard, they're understood, that you're spending time with them. A lot of times cases come up, not just because there's a bad outcome, but because people feel that they weren't treated well, that they weren't listened to, and that if you can kind of address that from the front as a physician, sit down, people think you're spending about three times as much time with them if you sit next to the bed as opposed to standing. So I went to one of those SEEK seminars. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then they also had one about how to be an ethical professional expert witness or something of that nature was the title. Because mm -hmm. there's so many moving parts of the medical legal cases that as physicians we're not aware of, you know, uh, four main premises that you have to have um, a physician patient relationship. There should be a breach of the standard of care. What is the breach of standard of care? that there are damages that have occurred and then tying them together, that causation piece. And then there are all these other terms, um, uh, deposition, uh, cross-examination, direct examination, interrogatories. You know, I think you kind of learn about that through the SEEK webinar, or actually in that time it was in person, they still have in-person and webinars. So that was really essential. And then I was, um, introduced to Rosalie Hamilton, who's with uh, Expert Communications, who does a wonderful job with helping experts, not just physicians, but in all different areas, uh, learn how to make themselves known to potential clients uh, through websites, various expert listings. And uh, that's been very helpful over the years. And more recently, um, Dan Sandman with uh, Sandman Legal is an attorney, but also does a lot with expert witnesses, both from legal aspects, but also from helping with marketing um, mm -hmm. and uh, reviewing the way you're marketing yourself, your contracts, things of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. We've done, I've done several seminars with Seek. They do a, an excellent job. I've been very happy with their training. So no, they, they, they do quite a nice job and they're uh, nice people too. I've uh, known them for about, geez, uh, 18 years. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> very good. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about the types of cases you commonly work on? Uh, can you give us an example of a case or this type of situations that call for your expertise? Sure. So, the majority of my practice has been in emergency medicine. So they're in the ERs. I get to wear blue scrubs instead of wearing a suit, which is nice. <laughs> and uh, also in the critical care department, the ICU. So most of the cases have been related in one way or the other to the emergency department or the critical care department, not all. So someone goes in, let's say for example, I'm just making up a case, someone has a heart attack uh, myocardial infarction, and there was an EKG that was obtained in the waiting room, and it did not get to a physician to look at within 10 minutes as it's supposed to, 
And about three or four hours later, someone finds the EKG, the patient's still been in the waiting room, bad things happen and someone brings up a case. Uh, also, uh, defense cases, um, someone is in the hospital, one of the nurses says something to the family that uh, upsets them. The nurse might say, oh, gee, the doctor should have caught this earlier or something like that. The old saying, uh, loose lips sink ships. Mm -hmm. And what the nurse said may or may not have been accurate. And something bad happens to the patient and the family gets upset and brings up a lawsuit. There have also been cases where I'm just asked to give causation opinion. So uh, someone was uh, went to a pharmacy, the wrong medicine was given. So the pharmacy did a problem and then there were some bad things that happened to the patient. They need a physician to explain those things. Or someone had some underlying medical problems. There was a fall at a nursing home or a place of work or they were in a car accident and now they have some additional medical problems and uh, attorneys will need someone to help sort out, okay, what here is due to the normal progression of the illness they've had all along and what was caused by the accident? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, we, we see that quite a bit in the type of cases I work on is the, you know, what was a pre-existing condition and what you know, happened because of this incident that brought us all together. Exactly. Uh, and so the rest of it is maybe more procedural. What are the what are the best practices that people should be adhering to? And did they or did they not do that type of thing? Correct. And uh, how well was it documented? What uh, and so the the medical records are part of a story. So as we said, not everything that happens gets written down. Not necessarily everything that's in the record happened, you know, was just copied and pasted. Then there's the whole uh, metadata. There's the printed out version of the medical record. And then there's tons of additional information that nurses or pharmacists or other people may enter into the medical record that don't get printed out when you see them. And then when you're looking at the medical record after the case, you're looking at a printed out or not necessarily printed for not to have it on paper because it just takes up too much space, but as a PDF on your computer. And how it looks now on your computer is not the same as how it looks in real time when the physician is looking at the computer on their screen. Hmm. Plus, the computer sometimes enter backdate, I guess might be the right term. So you might be looking at a case that uh, the event in the ER occurred on January 1st. Mm -hmm. And there are some lab tests that came back on two weeks later, January 15th. When they print out the record, sometimes it looks like those labs from January 15th are there during the January 1st visit. Well, they obviously in real life couldn't have been Right. But when they print out the record, it looks that way. And there are also little things like um, best practice warnings that pop up on the computer in real time, and those don't come out. So the record is one part of the story. And then when you talk to the families or they take sworn statements from the families or from um, depositions of the families or people that were there, they give one uh, view of what happened, which mm -hmm. may not be the same as the record. 
and then the physicians, nurses, medical staff, the respiratory therapists that are involved give a deposition and it's slightly different. So I kind of think of it as a triangle. You know, the mm-hmm. records, what the family says, what the medical professionals say, and somewhere in there, maybe closer to one of the points. The other is the truth. And as an expert, all you can do is to try to help understand what happened and then to explain it to the attorneys, first off, and then if it moves forward, to be able to explain it to the opposing attorneys, the judge, the jury. And sometimes if the family uh, just wants closure, they want to know, hey, no, it's not necessarily if I want to lose the case. I want to know what happened to my loved one and why. Mm-hmm. So you know, all of those are kind of uh, integral parts of the case. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a great analogy. Looking at you know the different sides and the different stories that you get as kind of a triangle, and you know, assuming that the actual truth is somewhere within that triangle. I like that. Yeah, and and, and the also actual truth of well. Didn't this occur at exactly this time? That's also a... <laughs> and, and the reason is, are we going by the clock on the wall? Are we going by the wristwatch on, or the Apple watch that someone has? Mm-hmm. Are we going by the computer time? And then the time that things are entered in the chart are always to some amount after the event occurred. Now, it might be a few seconds after it occurred, that they're entering the chart on the busy ER shift. You might've seen someone at 10 o'clock at night wrote a little bit in the chart or typed a little bit in the chart and then you're finishing it at eight in the morning, an hour after your shift ended. It doesn't mean there's anything abnormal going on. Sometimes you just uh, get busy. And the most important uh, part of emergency medicine or any medicine is caring for the patient always comes before documentation. You know, if you're limited mm-hmm. in number of people that are available, take care of the patient first, type the stuff in later. If you have a code going on, hopefully you have someone who's recording things in real time on the computer while it's happening. Very good. Very good. Uh, so we mentioned earlier that you've reviewed over 700 cases. And I would imagine that in those 700 cases, you've worked with a lot of different attorneys. Yes. And- some may be more experienced, some may be less experienced in the type of work that you can help with. Uh, do you have any words of wisdom for attorneys that do medical negligence work or things that you <clears throat> they all knew going into it? Sure. So I am a doctor, definitely not an attorney, but have been around the block a couple of times as the saying goes. Mm-hmm. So for physicians, for attorneys who are entering into medical legal work, one is to realize there's a lot of fine nuance to it, and a lot of certain uh, rules which vary from state to state or federal court that may get a case thrown out if its steps aren't followed correctly. So try to team up or learn from someone in your area, you know, what are the particular rules in my state or my jurisdiction? Uh, what is the difference between the federal court requirements and local court requirements? Figure out what are the particular questions that you're wanting answered um, when you're going to talk with uh, an expert. 
and you know, be open to what the expert has to say. Sometimes attorneys come in and they're gung-ho uh, on, you know, this is obviously a great case. I believe the family, uh, how could the doctors have done this? And sometimes likewise, the defense sort of is like, well, my uh, doctor I'm representing was absolutely perfect. How could anyone say he did anything wrong? And be open to kind of hearing uh, the expert's opinion. Uh, the good attorneys I found are very happy uh, or um, appreciative might be a better term. If an expert says, hey, you know, this may not be a good case from your side because of X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. um, what I say is when I'm talking to an attorney, you know, when I review things, I use a Clint Eastwood uh, reference for whatever reason. I'm going to tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly about the case. Mm -hmm. And the ugly is the part that's, you know, maybe very expensive or problematic for your case. And it's a lot better to hear it now rather than after you've thrown $50,000 down into a hole. Another thing that comes up is when you're asking for the records from the facility. And um, there's a lot of information that can be obtained. And so you want mm -hmm. to try and get the complete record. You want to ask it for everything related to the patient without filters, because um, there's a lot of other information such as uh, communications between uh, nurses and physicians that are in the record that may not be included. So you'd like to try and get everything. Ideally, have it uh, OCR uh, recognized, so I can do a word search. So the question is, uh, the patient was prescribed uh, warfarin at you know, 200 milligrams instead of two milligrams, I can type in warfarin and come immediately to where it needs to, where I, warfarin's mentioned. Mm -hmm. The other thing is try to have the records labeled or indexed. I mean, it's nice to have a little sheet of paper to the side or paper, PDF file <laughs> that says, uh, you know, these records are on this page, this record's on this page. But if you can also build that index into the PDF, so I can say, okay, let me go right to the progress notes or right to the labs. Mm -hmm. That's all reasonable. Um, and if you're a plaintiff's attorney and you're bringing up the case, you know, try and identify, you know, what are the main reasons that the family's bringing the case? Is it because they feel that uh, they want to get a lot of money? Do they want to just get um be recognized and show that the physician was wrong? Do they just want to get an understanding of what happened? Because sometimes if a family just wants closure about why their loved one died and they think the only way to do it is to file a legal case, that's not, not always the best way to get the information. But one last thing is, as an expert, I have other tips if people wanted to contact me, but <laughs> Sometimes when the family just wants closure, the attorney will ask me if I will talk with the family. And, and that, that was one of my favorite parts in practicing medicine is talking with the families, especially in the ICU at nighttime if it's not too busy and you have the time to sit and talk. The problem is in the medical legal arena, people from families often come into that conversation with a whole bunch of charged emotions. Mm-hmm. And if you are going to be saying something that is different than what they're wanting to hear, they sometimes are receptive, sometimes not so receptive. So I ask the attorney, I say, hey, can we have a safe word set up 
So if I'm in the discussion with a family, all three of us are on the phone, and I feel that the conversation's gotten to a point where it's no longer beneficial, that you can throw me a life preserver and get me out of the conversation. Not to be rude, but sometimes that's uh, sometimes that's needed. I can imagine that. <laughs> that's great. Those are great tips um, for uh, for attorneys and for experts. Uh, so, <coughs> excuse me. Oh, one other thing is for attorneys. Find out the specific questions for your expert. Uh, are you wanting them to opine on causation, on standard of care, on both? Uh, who are the parties that are involved uh, that you want opinions about? Or do you want to leave it more open and let the expert tell you? Yeah. I, I tend to err on the side of give me all the information that you have and let me figure things out rather than giving me bits and pieces totally only when agreed. I ask for it. So. Totally agreed. All right. So uh, in the cases that you work on, do you find that most of them are local? Uh, do you do work nationwide, uh, globally? What's what's typical for someone with your expertise? Okay. So working on, the, on a defense case would be nationwide, would be anywhere. Mm -hmm. Working on a plaintiff case where it's a medical negligence case, so... Uh, if the allegation or question is that a doctor or a hospital did something wrong, myself and many experts try not to do that right in the neighborhood where you live. Um, so if I worked at a hospital, it would be kind of problematic if I was testifying against the hospital I worked at. Um, mm -hmm. So usually I will not testify for a medical negligence case against a provider within 80 miles or so of St. Louis. One, you may know those physicians, they may be referring patients to your hospital. Two, you never know when you may knock on someone else's door looking for a job. Yeah. But I've given, uh, I've reviewed cases in 40 different states, plus the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Um, the vast majority that's come across my desk as plaintiff, I'm always happy to give more defense cases. But uh, what comes across my desk, the vast majority is plaintiff cases. Okay. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so when it comes to expert witness work, um, you know, clearly this is different than you know, actually practicing medicine. Uh, what is it about the expert witness work that you really enjoy? It's uh, it's it's like a reading a detective novel. Um, sometimes you you know the end of it. Usually you know how things ended, but it's a question of how do things get there. Kind of like some of the movies where they show, you know, what finally happened at the end, and they kind of through the movie build up to how do we get to that point. So looking through things, um, piecing together, you know, was there a misunderstanding of oh, this is why the family thought that, or a doctor missed the vital piece of information and that's why he came to the wrong conclusion. So it's reading through all that, uh, who ha what happened, why did it happen, how did it happen, did the problem with medicine and how it was practiced, is that what caused the bad outcome? Was a bad outcome uh, inevitable or could it have been changed? 
Uh, and, and plus, it's, uh, it's nice that it's flexible. I mean, right now, I'm here at home looking out of the cul-de-sac. I can be on vacation uh, somewhere else and have my laptop and still do the work. So those, those are some of the parts of it that I enjoy. Oh. And, and it's a reasonable income. Can't, can't deny that. Yeah. That's, that's interesting that you say that it's flexible. And I guess coming from a doctor's perspective, that makes sense. But when I've done some of these other podcasts, uh, a lot of the engineering type experts, one of the things that they dislike about it is how schedule oriented expert witness work can be. <laughs> and so it's, it's interesting that you find that it's much more flexible than your regular work where the other people see it uh, exactly the opposite. Yeah, well, and, and it depends. So there might be, if so, if there's a trial, for example, mm -hmm. you know, usually the trials are multiple months out and I'll ask the attorneys, if you're able to, mm -hmm. can you please um, let me know before you're scheduling the trial and I'll, I can let you know what are some dates I am or I'm not available. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't have that uh, ability. It's like, Nope, the court just tells us this is what it's going to be. Right. You know, for depositions, usually they say, hey, Kenny, give me some dates when you're available and I can be home or I don't have to be home. Um, I, I would say as an expert, be a little bit wary if it's an attorney who you've never worked with, who contacts you and says that they're in a rush and they, they need you to immediately work on some things and have a report ready by next Tuesday because their statute of limitations is running or their deadline's running. Um, sometimes that happens, and you know, mm -hmm. we're all, we've all been in situations where deadline comes up on us. But if it's someone that you don't have a relationship with, uh, always, and even if you do, it's always safest. If they have a big deadline, get a retainer ahead of time. The first time you're ever working with any attorney on any case, uh, I always get a retainer ahead of time. Uh, surprising, but some attorneys, when they've heard my opinions, actually haven't wanted to pay. <laughs> so uh, be warned. And and I've had a couple of times when people have been in a real rush and, oh, our accounting department's closed. I can't get the check to you. Get me the report. And then I'll, I'll pay you afterwards. No. You know, there's Venmo. There's PayPal. You can pay by credit card. You can sort it out later. So uh, how does it say you can go? Uh, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So, uh, you know, protect yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if they really need it, they'll figure out a way to make it happen. Oh, yeah. I, I've had a couple. Absolutely impossible. A payroll won't, uh, your accounting won't send out a check for three weeks, but we need the report on Monday. I'm like, as soon as I receive the payment, uh, I'll give you the report. Miraculously, the uh, payment arrives miraculously <laughs> yep i've been there as well very good good information um so we maybe talked about this a little bit but when you're reviewing a case and you find out that you're definitely on the wrong side or that your whoever retained you doesn't really have a case uh, what do you do in those situations or how do you handle okay. it with the attorney so as i said uh, i tell the attorney up front i say hey I'll tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly about the case. Send me a retainer for, uh, I do three hours of my time, and I, I will look at the records. I won't go over that three hours. I'll leave time for us to talk. Um, if I need more time, we'll talk, and then we'll both decide whether we're on the same side. And I tell them, I say, hey, look, I've looked at the records. 
and either I agree with you and here's why, or I disagree and here's why the, the alleged uh, breach of the standard of care. So the thing you think that they did wrong really wasn't wrong, or it's not quite as you pictured it, or it didn't cause the problem. Um, or for whatever reason, if I don't think it's a good case, I'll tell them. Or sometimes what happens is, look, you know, this really comes down to one of these terms that brings uh, anxiety and fear to many physicians. Uh, inborn errors of metabolism, one of these weird nebulous uh, categories. Uh, some geneticists may love it, not me. So uh, if something comes up in an area, I say, you know, I think there may have been a problem, but you really need an expert in this area over here. And what I usually mm -hmm. say is, you know, it's not in my best interest to turn away business, but I think you'd be better served with this expert, or I think you most likely don't want to file this case. Now, you try and get that before you get too deep into the record. So two or three hours of work on it, and then you kind of cut ties mm -hmm. there. Now, Sometimes you're in a case and you're working on things. And as I always put at the bottom of my report, I reserve the right to amend or modify my opinions based on new material that may become available. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden from an interrogatory or a deposition, there is a vital piece of information that comes up that totally changes the way the case looks. In that case, I'm just up front and I tell the attorney, this is the new information. This is what that means. And accordingly, these are what opinions I'm able to give. And these are the opinions that I'm not able to give. Or it's totally changed it. And I think you may just want to you know, drop the case. Or if it's a defense case, say, I think this is very, very problematic for your physician that you're representing. You may want to uh, rethink your strategy and whether or not you want to settle. Mm -hmm. Now, all those are determinations about whether to settle or not. Those are the attorney's uh, decisions. I can all I can do is give my input as a physician who's reviewed a lot of cases. That's one of the nice things about this type of work is that it's not the expert's job to win or lose a case. Absolutely, uh, you know, our job is just to explain the science, explain best practices as they exist and then let the attorneys argue, you know, who gets to win and who gets to lose. So, yeah. And one of the other things, not exactly uh, to the question, but you read some depots or you see videos, of some depots and some people from very fine, uh, highly regarded institutions and are professors, chairs of departments, and they, they know the medicine in and out, but they're not able to communicate it to a judge and uh, you know, a jury of lay people. So, you know, you can be extremely knowledgeable, but if you can't get that knowledge across in a way that people un are, can understand it, it's not really helpful. And it may actually be mm -hmm. unhelpful. So I actually have a little poster of Einstein up on my wall that says, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Yeah, that's absolutely true. One of the things that someone recommended to me at one point uh, and that I recommend to everybody that I talk to that does this type of work is to join a Toastmasters group and go and practice speaking regularly. They usually have weekly meetings and 
I've been to a couple. Yeah. Um, yeah, you got to find the right group. Some are better than others, but once you find the right group, that consistent practice <laughs> and training on public speaking and explaining technical issues to usually there's a lot of non-technical people in these groups uh, in a way that they can understand it is extremely helpful. I have found. I haven't been one of those in years. Might be fun to go back and try one. <laughs> All right. So uh, we talked about things that you like about expert witness work, but we know that no job is perfect. Uh, is there anything about the expert witness industry or the work itself that that bothers you or rubs you the wrong way, or that you have a hard time with sometimes? Yeah. So. You know, as, as the legal system works, there's always there's going to be two sides. You have to have someone who's bringing up a complaint and someone who's defending against it. And sometimes attorneys will call you and based on limited information from what they've heard from a family or uh, what they intuitively think of, well, isn't it true that medicine should work this way? Um, so if someone's put on a blood thinner medicine, and they end up having uh, severe bleeding, uh, bleeding into their brain or their intestines. And the attorney's like, well, why do they have them on the medicine? If only they hadn't had them on the medicine. I'm like, you know, sometimes people need to be on blood thinners, anticoagulants, antiplatelets. And sometimes people bleed, but that's not because that does not mean it was wrong to give them the medicine. It may or may not have been. So working with some attorneys who are very, very stuck in their viewpoint and unwilling to hear other uh, opinions, that can be difficult. It's also, I always like, prefer it when I can get involved in a case, if it's a plaintiff case, before they decide to file, to file it. You know, mm -hmm. that's the time to have someone look through and say, hey, what are some of the strong points, the weak points? Sometimes I've had attorneys who the case has been going for two years. They've taken tons of depositions. Uh, the time for discovery is closed. So you can't get any additional information from the medical records. And they want an, a, an expert who only agrees with them. And mm -hmm. it's like, you know, <laughs> I've looked at the records. Thank you. I did get my retainer. These are my opinions. And I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, don't agree. On the other side, there are some... Um, Attorneys on the opposite side, uh, whether you're plaintiff or defense, you know, whoever the opposite side is, and some of them can be less than respectful. And they mm -hmm. uh, realize that at a deposition, uh, they're yelling, screaming, and ranting is not going to come off. Uh, it won't be as visible in the depot, and they try and intimidate. There, <laughs> there was one case where we were in a large uh, room giving a deposition, and went over and they had to put us into a smaller room. So in that smaller room, there's a small little coffee table desk. And then there's like a business professional's desk. So I go in the room and I sit at the business professional's desk. And the attorney who's taking my deposition says, no, no, no. I sit in that desk that has the higher chair. You sit over there, which has the lower chair. It's, you know, these kind of power game type things. Oh, goodness. That's interesting. Um, a, a couple of points on that. I've found, like you mentioned, that attorneys are usually much nicer in a trial than they are in a deposition. Something about having the judge there, maybe. <laughs> um, but there's also something 
that I had one experience that was really enlightening as far as the act that attorneys put on to try and elicit a response. And I was sitting in this deposition and, you know, they'd asked the same question four or five times and my attorney objecting, asked and answered. And they go back and forth for like three or four or five minutes and they're, they're getting heated. They're, you know, yelling and arguing and pounding on the table. And I'm just sitting there. This was one of my first depositions too. So I'm just like, whoa, what's going on guys? Um, and, you know, they finally figured it out and went on. And then after the deposition, they were like, hey, you want to go get lunch? Uh, you know, to the other attorney. And I'm like, whoa, what is going on here? You guys were just at each other's throats. But, you know, it's really just, uh, I don't I don't want to say an act, but they're doing their job trying to get the best results for their clients. And sometimes, you know, that requires, you know, being aggressive and sometimes maybe not. But uh, it don't don't let the way the attorney acts during a deposition uh, be your only impression of who they are as a person, I guess. Right. Or what their thoughts are about you. you know, they exactly. may uh, hold you in high regard. They just don't do that at the depot. I had a similar mm -hmm. circumstance. Uh, attorneys from out of town came up and they're yelling and screaming at each other at the depot. And they're just being calm and quiet. And when it's all done, they're like, hey, go hey, Tom, you ready to go play golf? And they, they'd all drove up to the depot from a different state and they had a friend who was in that in our city and they all went to play golf afterwards and I, my reaction was the same you guys play golf you go, oh yeah we're best friends you know this is all just part of the uh you know the, the work experience yeah that's uh i think that's an important thing for experts to recognize is you know that you know attorneys are just people um but they do have a job to do and they do their best to do a good job the long story is for an expert, you know, try not to be combative uh, with the attorneys at uh, deposition or at uh, trial. And it's not always easy. Uh, there are some attorneys who are really trying to push your buttons, but just it's, it mm -hmm. doesn't come off in a good light if you really fall for it and uh, come back and like to them in an aggressive manner. Yeah, try, try and be above it try and be above that that's great advice that's great advice all right so we talked talk a little bit about depositions uh, and trials and I think a lot of times those are portrayed at least in the media as very serious and well-planned out events um, but in my experience that's not always the case and so I'm curious have you ever had a particularly lighthearted or funny interaction during a deposition or a trial that you could share? So, so the lighthearted one is actually going to tell that story about the people playing golf. The, the surprise one is, as an expert, you may have, you know, reviewed the case, you've come up with opinions, thoughts that you're going to pine on in the depot. But you have to listen to the questions. You know, one, you know, listen carefully. Sometimes they try and ask you 20 questions. Uh, is grass green? Yes. Is the sky blue? Yes. Is it uh, snowing outside today? Yes. Uh, this doctor obviously really screwed up. Yes. No, no, wait, that's not what I meant. You know, so listen to the questions. But sometimes you're asked a question that your attorney never thought of, you never thought of. So, for example, 
there was a case, a patient, part of the allegations were whether a internal medicine doctor in the hospital should have told the surgeon at this point on Wednesday, the patient is now stable and can go to surgery. And uh, the attorney's thought was, yes, the doctor absolutely should have told them the patient needs to go and is stable to have surgery. So the question that came up to me in the deposition was, okay, Dr. Stein, well, once this date, you know, Wednesday or whatever it is, came around, the surgeons no longer felt that they needed to operate on the patient. So whether the doctor, the internal medicine doctor did say the patient is stable to go to surgery, or they did not say the patient's stable to go to surgery. If the surgeons weren't going to do the surgery, did it in any way whatsoever affect the outcome of the patient? To which the answer had to be no. All you can do as an expert is to answer honestly, as best as you can, based on the information you have available. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so if you were, you've had, you've had a lot of good tips today for, for experts and for attorneys. Uh, if you were to give someone who had just been retained on their first case one piece of advice, what would it be? Okay, so, so I'll give you a top five. One, always obtain a retainer ahead of time. Uh, never guarantee when you're first told about a case, you're going to give a favorable opinion. You have to look at the facts and do it based on the facts, not on the um, uh, summarized abbreviated version that the attorney gave you. And, and if you're trying to get advertised, as I said, uh, expert communications, expertcommunications.com uh, with Rosalie Hamilton and Dan Salmon, ask them to help you do your marketing. Um, on one other thing is try and put together as best you can a chronology, uh, even if it's just real simple of what happened. Sometimes the records come and there's records from the end of the admission and then the beginning of the admission and then afterwards the middle. Try and get a logical chronology of some type that you can put together to help uh, you understand things and explain things. And just, uh, you know, just be honest and tell the facts as they are. Absolutely. I love it. So uh, when you are writing a report or testifying in a deposition or trial, uh, what do you find makes a good expert or helps the expert be persuasive? If that's different than, than the tips that you've just given. And so I, I don't know if persuasive is the best, but to, to be able to explain things. So the job of an expert is not to swing the jury, it's, uh, it's to explain the facts. Um, and, you know, the judge, the jury, they're the ones that come up with the opinions. Um, as an expert, it's your job to be able to explain things as well as you can. If there are opposing experts to, you know, politely but professionally say, the opposing side is proposing that this is what happened that um, this was reasonable care that was given because of X, Y, Z, and they're citing some article or from the defense side that they're alleging 
that uh, no doctor would ever do X, Y, Z. So give your position, but also if you're allowed, some places they don't allow you to give your opinion on the opposing experts. Um, look at what they're saying. And if there's things you agree with, be willing to admit you agree with them, but be willing to say, hey, this is why I disagree. Not to just say I disagree, but be able in one way, either with research or clinical experience, be able to back up your reasoning of why it is you disagree with the other side's opinions. Yeah, that's always always good to have something to base your opinions on rather than to just say, oh, I just know, or because I said so. Or, that's yeah. just the way it is. So, And, and, and not, not, it's never an always or never. It's not uh, that a doctor did everything bad. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there might be some things they did that were right. And that's a question that comes up. Well, doctor, tell me some things that you agree with that the doctor did. What did the doctor do that was appropriate? You know, and you have to be honest. You know, if they did things that you're on the plaintiff side, this is what they did that was appropriate. If you're on the defense side and they say, hey, doctor, what are some things that you maybe you don't think it was a breach, but you may disagree with or uh, were incorrect that the doctor did. And just mm -hmm. be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, so we find that most experts would like to be involved in more cases. Uh, so what have you found to be most effective marketing technique or the best way to get new cases? So earlier in my career, uh, a lot of my cases came from being listed in the SEEK, S-E-A-K, Expert Witness uh, Directory. They have a print one and it's online. Mm -hmm. There's ALM, uh, Expert Witness. I think their website's now law.com, I think. Uh, National Directory of Expert Witnesses. Those were the ones, uh, plus having a website. Um, mm -hmm. Mine is er-md.com. Those were helpful. Now... You know, I still do some advertising and that they always will bring those up at the depositions and show you the photographs and do what page. But uh, really most of the cases I get now are from repeat customers or attorneys who are on uh, um, listservs uh, or chats where they kind of say, hey, do you know any good expert in this area? And mm -hmm. one attorney will say, hey, Dr. Stein did a fine job. You may want to contact him. And, and I've actually been uh, fortunate enough that at the end of a case where I was on the plaintiff's side and the case is closed, that the defense attorneys have come up to me and say, hey, you know, you did a good job. Will you work with us on a case? Yeah, I find that's not terribly uncommon if you do a really good job on a case. That's very helpful. Uh, so what has adding expert witness work to your offerings done for your life and your business well, coming from the well, medical well, side as i tell the attorneys uh when we're working on the case at the end of a case uh i say uh, my kids college fund says thank you uh <laughs> so you know it, it definitely has been financially uh, helpful mm -hmm. um and as i said it's it's very nice to be able to have the flexibility uh, this photograph is uh, La Jolla Cove out in La Jolla, California, near San Diego. So I could go out there, bring my laptop, and uh, in the heat of the day, not that it gets too hot on the shore in San Diego, uh, you know, be in the room and work on cases. 
so it's a lot of flexibility and it's um as i said i enjoy it oh when you ask about things I least enjoy, one of the other things is reading depositions. Reading <laughs> depositions can be quite painful. It can be a slog for sure. Especially when they ask, who is your girlfriend in fifth grade? And you know, all this extraneous <laughs> information that has nothing to do with the case. Uh, absolutely. I totally understand that. <laughs> all right. So for any attorneys that might be listening, if they want to hire you for a case, what's the best way for them to find you to get in touch with you? Sure. So my website is ER, like emergency room, er-mdmedicaldoctor.com. So er-md.com. My email is kennystein1, the numeral one, at gmail.com. And on LinkedIn, you can just look me up as uh, Kenny Stein at LinkedIn. All right. That's, that's great. Uh, Dr. Stein, thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing your thoughts and opinions and experiences. Uh, it's been, been very enjoyable, and I think it will be great for other people to learn from you. So thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having this uh, podcast. It's been delightful listening to some of your other uh, guests, and uh, thank you for the invitation. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.